Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined on the mic by my co-host and co-producer, Calvin Pollock. How's it going, Calvin? Doing pretty good, Alex. How about you? I'm doing okay as well. It's the dregs of the semester right now. You know, winter is starting to set in here in Connecticut, and yeah, I don't know. How's it feeling for you out there in Washington? Well, Seattle is really giving us a lot of Seattle lately. Ah. It's a lot of, <laughs> lot of rain, a lot of clouds. Um, I've heard it does that. I've heard it tends to do that. You know, it's just it's just like one big episode of Frasier over here, and I'm just <laughs> trying not to get the tossed salad and scrambled eggs dumped on my head. Gosh, I don't know if that's a better metaphor for working with students or committee work that we get. Just kidding, everybody. Uh, we are back at it again, once again, with another episode of Reverb. Following up on our previous episode, if you did not get a chance yet to listen to episode 85, Discourse and Manipulation, we highly recommend that you go and check that one out first. That will provide a lot of the critical analytic context for the kinds of things we'll be talking about on this show. But we are certainly doing a continuation of of the subject matter that we discussed related to rhetoric and its use for manipulative purposes in discourse and the way that that discourse makes its way out into society. Yeah. And that episode, I think that one thing we were trying to do is not just intervene in ongoing controversies, but give people a method and a framework that you can apply to really any ongoing conversation in politics and media, because manipulation is not something that's, you know, restricted to one particular controversy of the day. Having said that, I think that this episode topically is going to connect quite strongly to that last episode. So just to begin from kind of the most familiar or simplest introduction to what we talked about last time. We did discuss Carnegie Mellon University President Farnham Jehanian's email to students about the ongoing Israel-Gaza war and protests that had gone on at Carnegie Mellon University related to that controversy and that war, which is still ongoing and has resulted in the deaths of over 17,000 Palestinians in Gaza and over 1,500 Israelis, civilians, and IDF military members. So this is a really important topic, and it's a topic that involves a lot of manipulation, as we saw with that Farnham Jahanian email. That's right. And of course, we tackled that Farnham Jahanian email because that was the most sort of immediate to us as academics, and specifically as Graduates of Carnegie Mellon. As graduates of Carnegie Mellon, that's right. But today we are going to be talking about a broader discourse that definitely has a wider impact on the social sphere, how the larger society is processing this conflict in the messaging that is coming from the federal government. So we will be looking at an artifact in just a moment here that comes directly from the White House from President Joe Biden in his commentary on the ongoing conflict between Israel and Gaza. But before we get into that, I think we need to just do a really quick recap of the theory of discourse and manipulation that we ran through last time. Again, if you want a more thorough rundown of that, highly recommend going back and listening to episode 85 before this one. But to just give the most brief and concise recap, the article that we covered that talks a little bit more about discourse and manipulation in context is Toon Van Dyke's 2006 article, Discourse and Manipulation, published Classic. in- 
Classic. Classic. Can't get better than Van Dyke coming out of critical discourse studies in the journal Discourse and Society. So we talked a little bit about what it means to do a critical discourse analysis or use critical discourse studies methods in that we are taking a look as analysts at a social problem something that we have isolated as being problematic. We are taking a position and attempting to ameliorate that discursive issue that is taking place, one particularly in which there is an issue of power, a difference of power where the more powerful is typically using discourse as a means of reifying their own oppression and domination of a less powerful group. And that gets into the first of Van Dyke's three ways of analyzing manipulation. And the first of the three is the social aspect of manipulation. So in the same way that really any critical discourse study is going to look at issues of power, there has to be some power differential for manipulation to take place. Manipulation occurs as a result of more powerful groups, more powerful institutions, some kind of more powerful collective entity manipulating a less powerful entity fundamentally. And those power differentials can occur along various kinds of axes and through various kinds of resources, whether those are material resources, ideological resources, or even just like pure information. That's exactly correct. So the second way of analyzing the way that manipulation operates in a discursive context is through cognition. So Van Dyke really does talk about manipulation as a kind of cognitive mind control. He uses that terminology not to describe the way that you are you know, necessarily putting someone under hypnosis and brainwashing them, but giving them the kind of language and the worldview that comes along with that language and that discourse to understand the way that the world works in a particular way to frame friends and enemies of insider or outsider group. And then, of course, to manipulatively focus on certain elements of a problem so that you form these lasting mental schemas when you are faced with similar iterations of that problem further down the line, you will continue to think about them in the way that the powerful manipulator wants you to think about them. And then the final level, the kind of most granular level at which manipulation happens, the substance of manipulation for Van Dyke is, of course, discourse. The actual language, other kinds of symbolic communication, and the order of that discourse and the way that it is given to us is the primary means through which manipulation is communicated. This can manifest itself through a variety of different rhetorical strategies, some of which we covered in the previous episodes, such as the use of passive versus active voice to render certain actors as actively perpetrating actions versus having no say or no action, or at least trying to hide who is doing the action, as well as through other kinds of positive or negative evaluations, whether explicit or implicit, really just kind of using language or other kinds of symbolic communication to either obscure critical context or other information that an audience might need to know in order to not be manipulated, and then of course to selectively focus on on certain elements of the discourse that the manipulator wants you to focus on. Yeah. And we talked about how this can be as simple as the order of paragraphs, like yes. what information do you put near the top and what do you bury? And so that kind of ordering can have a huge effect on the manipulative character of the discourse. And so it's not even just word choice, but it can be the order of the words, the order of the content grammatical structures, all of these kinds of things can play a role. 
That's exactly right. Now, today, as I said before, we are obviously discussing an artifact that has a slightly larger, I would say, sort of social resonance, at least in terms of the impact that this discourse is going to be having. We're moving, we're kind of zooming out a little bit from the microcosm of Carnegie Mellon University, large research institution though it may be, to a much broader social context. Wait, so Alex, are you saying that the United States and the world are more important than CMU. I don't, I don't understand how that could be possible. You know, uh, after having gone to CMU for seven years, those of you in grad school know what we're talking about. Sometimes that can start to feel like the center of the universe in some ways yeah. that might be a little less than healthy. But indeed, I am making a very stark claim that the president of the United States has a little bit more reach and a little bit more manipulative discursive power than the university president at Carnegie Mellon. All right, I'll let you have that one. Yeah, so so we did want to get into this this article, which it's kind of a fascinating intervention into the debate about Israel's ongoing military operations in the Gaza Strip in Palestine, which was this op-ed published in the Washington Post on November 18th. So it came out quite a while ago now, but I think that the fundamental kind of rhetorical strategies used here have continued to be the dominant rhetorical strategy of the Biden administration dealing with this issue. And so the title of the op-ed is, The U.S. Won't Back Down from the Challenge of Putin and Hamas. And this is from President Joe Biden on November 18th, 2023, published in the Washington Post. So I'll get into it. Today, the world faces an inflection point where the choices we make, including in the crises in Europe and the Middle East, will determine the direction of our future for generations to come. What will our world look like on the other side of these conflicts? Will we deny Hamas the ability to carry out pure, unadulterated evil? Will Israelis and Palestinians one day live side by side in peace with two states for two peoples? All right. So I just want to stop you right there, Cal. Go ahead and stop me wherever, Alex. (laughs) Of course. We have just run into, I think, our first instance of manipulation in this article. I mean, we could could say that the very title of this article, I guess, is also a manipulation strategy. The idea Mm -hmm. that we would be talking about, for example, the challenge of Putin and Hamas in the exact same, not only the same sentence, but even the same breath, the same phrase in that headline assumes that those two things are somehow related, right? Now, how they are related, we are not really given a chance to uh, really understand, only that they are challenges that the U.S. is facing that they will not back down from. But then we get into this rhetorical questioning here in the third paragraph of the article, which says, will we deny Hamas the ability to carry out pure, unadulterated evil? Obviously, we can presume the answer to that is probably yes, we will as the U.S. If you know anything about its policy positions, that is very likely to be the answer to that question. But then we get this second question that seems like it's going to be just as obvious, just as straightforward, that says, will Israelis and Palestinians one day live side by side in peace with two states for two people? That is a deeply ideological statement that glosses over a lot of very complicated history about the Palestinian nationalist movement, about the you know the Israeli settlement in on Palestinian land and its expansion into statehood, and the idea that a two-state solution 
solution is the only sort of obvious solution, just as obvious as it is presumed that we will deny Hamas the ability to carry out unadulterated evil is just not the same thing. 100%. And of course, we could acknowledge the intentional dissociation between Hamas referenced in that first rhetorical question and Palestinians referenced in the second rhetorical question. There's an assumption that Hamas is not part of the Palestinians, which which is, of course, beneficial to U.S. policy and strategy for the region. Yeah. So let's continue. Will we hold Vladimir Putin accountable for his aggression so that the people of Ukraine can live free and Europe remains an anchor for global peace and security? So again, we have another rhetorical question, starting with will. All of these are forward-looking and future-oriented, which I think is important just to note here. Now we have an equivalency that's being drawn between Hamas as, you know, the putative government structure of the Gaza Strip, you know, in its ongoing war with Israel. And now we have Vladimir Putin and Russia and their war uh, with Ukraine being held to the exact same standard, or at least that these are equivalent struggles. Treating Putin's regime and Hamas as equivalent is obviously a pretty false equivalency, both historically, geopolitically, and materially in just about every way. I mean, you know, Russia is a gigantic, almost like, you know, subcontinent of a country. Hamas controls a strip of land that is what, how big is the Gaza Strip, Calvin? Do you know? The Gaza Strip total territory is 140 square miles. Yeah. So, We are not, you know, Russia, of course, having its own kind of gigantic or maybe not quite as gigantic now organized military, Hamas having essentially the Qasem brigades and a lot of its own sort of paramilitary groups. We are not talking at all about equivalent powers, right? Like, you know, we are we are talking about two, quote unquote, enemies of the U.S. state as they are being construed by Joe Biden. To me, this is kind of a clear attempt to try and inflate the threat that is posed by Hamas to the scale and level that or with which Russia is already treated. Yes. So there's certainly an equivalency being drawn. And I would also just flag a really important discursive strategy of manipulation is the use of assumptions, embedded assumptions in sentences. And in this one, we have a really important embedded assumption, which is that Europe remains an anchor for global peace and security. So that assumes that Europe in the past, both both now and in the past, has been an anchor for global peace and security. And that, of course, we probably don't even need to point out all of the ways in which Europe has spread global insecurity and spread war, which is right. the opposite of peace around the world. So Absolutely. I'll continue here. And the overarching question, will we relentlessly pursue our positive vision for the future, or will we allow those who do not share our values to drag the world to a more dangerous and divided place? So here we have yet another similar assumption to what Calvin just pointed out in the last example, which is that, you know, Europe is this anchor for global peace and security. Don't look at all the imperialism that they did over the last couple of centuries. Now we get the equivalent assumption here, which is that the U.S., 
and those who share our values, right, are against people that want to turn the world into a more dangerous and divided place, presuming, of course, that the U.S. has not in any way contributed to making the world a more dangerous and divided place, which we'll get into a lot more context, I'm sure, as we continue diving in here. But I mean, listen to a lot of our previous episodes early in this podcast about the history of the global war on terror, of mm-hmm. the you know current and ongoing military interventions of both the U.S. military and the U.S security state into the affairs of other countries. And you will know that, of course, this statement is uh, a patent manipulation, that the U.S. and its values actually profits in many ways from making the world a more dangerous and divided place. Absolutely. And yeah, just check out our September 2021 episode with John Otto. Exactly. All right, I'll continue here. Both Putin and Hamas are fighting to wipe a neighboring democracy off the map. And both Putin and Hamas hope to collapse broader regional stability and integration and take advantage of the ensuing disorder. America cannot and will not let that happen for our own national security interests and for the good of the entire world. I'm just putting up a picture in the listeners' minds of the Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man meme here of the... Both Putin and Hamas hope to collapse the broader regional stability and integration and take advantage of the ensuing disorder. Again, there's no projection going on here. The U.S. has never done anything like this. Certainly do not look into uh, Halliburton and what happened with that after the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. Don't Google Naomi Klein, the shock doctrine. Absolutely not. There's nothing to see there. You won't learn anything. Anyways, yeah, no, and and I just have to say as well, wipe a neighboring democracy off the map, the way in which this equivalency is being drawn between Ukraine on the one hand and Israel on the other is such a manipulative context collapse. I mean, we just have, there's so much context that's so radically different between Israel and Ukraine. And there, you know, there's decades of scholarship about how Israel really cannot be considered a democracy due to the fact that it maintains an ongoing military occupation. Certainly since 1967, when it formally occupied the West Bank, Gaza, that, you know, it ceased being a democracy. But, you know, that same scholarship, of course, talks about how the United States should not really be considered a democracy. So this is not about singling out Israel. It's pointing out that this term democracy is incredibly manipulative, particularly coming from someone like this. It's serving a a purpose of manipulating the framing of this issue. That's exactly right. So we'll continue. The United States is the essential nation. We rally allies and partners to stand up to aggressors and make progress toward a brighter, more peaceful future. The world looks to us to solve the problems of our time. That is the duty of leadership, and America will lead. For if we walk away from the challenges of today, the risk of conflict could spread and the costs to address them will only rise. We will not let that happen. So this is essentially American exceptionalism par excellence here. We've just replaced the word exceptional with essential, which, you know, is more or less a little synonymous with it. You know, America is the only nation that can make this happen. We are the ones who rally allies and partners. We stand up to aggressors. In other words, America is a defender. We have never been an aggressor under these Mm -hmm. terms. We have this very important kind of characterological manipulation being set up here of America as protecting from aggressors and not actually being an aggressor in its own right. 
Right. And I mean, there is some fascinating stuff in here that feels very neoliberal. The world looks to us to solve the problems of our time. We shoulder uh, the duty of leadership. There's a lot yeah. of like, there's a lot of sort of uh, like white man's burdeny kind of rhetoric that's going on here that is activating a lot of manipulative tropes that might be, you know, already operative at a cognitive level for those of you who have lived through the war on terror and even other wars prior to that of rendering America as a defender of democracy against aggressors is a very common trope that gets repeated across different foreign policy texts, especially at the presidential rhetorical level. Exactly. And just this idea that there are organic problems in the world that the world <laughs> looks to America to solve. That's a highly manipulative idea that implies that when America acts, it has the buy-in of the whole world. And I'm not even sure so much that that manipulation is intended for the whole world as much as it is to make Americans feel better or feel less anxiety about what America does to the world. And that, I think, is really kind of the rub. If we're trying to suss out what the manipulation of this text is trying to do and who it is attempting to manipulate, I think we really should pay attention to the fact that, like, you know, we, you and I, Calvin, and many of our listeners likely listening to this are American citizens. There is a clear sort of crisis that a lot of people in America are having, a crisis of conscience about the fact that, for instance, our tax dollars are going to fund the ongoing violence that Israel is perpetrating against people in Gaza. And as a result, we can read this in some ways as an attempt to not only justify, but, you know, sort of render it the duty of America to take on this responsibility of, you know, protecting our allies, standing up against aggressors and defending all that is good and right in America for an insider audience. Absolutely. And so I'm going to continue here. I'm going to skip over some sections here that deal exclusively with Ukraine to get into what the president says about the current war in Gaza. So going on, President Biden says, we have also seen throughout history how conflicts in the Middle East can unleash consequences around the globe. Boy, that is the understatement of the year coming from an American <laughs> president. Well, so for those for those of you who are astute listeners, again, you can go back and listen to our episodes on the rhetoric surrounding the war on terror. But really, we just have to underscore how much has been made of the comparisons, not only by people who are critical of the Israeli government and of the U.S. government, but also of people who are in favor of you know the continued violence and continued intervention of Israel uh, and the IDF into Gaza, which is calling October 7th, the incursion of Hamas into Israel and the murder of uh, 1,200 Israeli people, that that was Israel's 9-11. And right. there, are, there are so many ways that that metaphor, I think, you know, makes sense, but not in the way that any of the people uh, using it intend it to, which is that if you look back at what 9-11 actually wrought, its consequences uh, around the globe, things did not get better as a result of U.S. intervention. I think that is a pretty uncontroversial thing to say. And so to invoke that here, to say that if we do not get involved again now, either us or our allies and our proxies, that this conflict is only going to continue, I think, is an assumption that has no ground whatsoever. Yeah, just this idea that conflicts in the Middle East can unleash consequences around, around the globe. So let's expand conflict in the Middle East. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but yes. 
clearly the manipulative tactic here is to imply that conflicts occur again organically in the Middle East. United States policy and United States action has nothing to do with that except intervene and solve those problems. Yes. And so that that's where the framing up top becomes kind of necessary to understand this part of the argument below. But let's get into what the president says about Israel and Gaza. We stand firmly with the Israeli people as they defend themselves against the murderous nihilism of Hamas. On October 7th, Hamas slaughtered 1,200 people, including 35 American citizens, in the worst atrocity committed against the Jewish people in a single day since the Holocaust. Infants and toddlers, mothers and fathers, grandparents, people with disabilities, even Holocaust survivors were maimed and murdered. Entire families were massacred in their homes. Young people were gunned down at a music festival. Bodies riddled with bullets and burned beyond recognition. And for over a month, the families of more than 200 hostages taken by Hamas, including babies and Americans, have been living in hell, anxiously waiting to discover whether their loved ones are alive or dead. At the time of this writing, my team and I are working hour by hour, doing everything we can to get the hostages released. And while Israelis are still in shock and suffering the trauma of this attack, Hamas has promised that it will relentlessly try to repeat October 7th. It is said very clearly that it will not stop. The Palestinian people deserve a state of their own and a future free from Hamas. I, too, am heartbroken by the images out of Gaza and the deaths of many thousands of civilians, including children. Palestinian children are crying for lost parents. Parents are writing their child's name on their hand or leg so they can be identified if the worst happens. Palestinian nurses and doctors are trying desperately to save every precious life they possibly can with little to no resources. Every innocent Palestinian life lost is a tragedy that rips apart families and communities. So just to kind of do a cross comparison here, we have these two paragraphs that are split up by, you know, this assertion that Hamas is promising that it will relentlessly try to repeat October 7th over and over again. But that in the first paragraph, we get these really extensive descriptions, like very vivid, visceral descriptions of the kind of violence that, you know, that Biden is talking about being committed in Israel of, you know, people being gunned down, riddled with bullets, you know, maimed and murdered, all of the different kinds of people who are being, you know, that are mothers, fathers, grandparents, people with disabilities, infants and toddlers, even Holocaust survivors. There's a wide array of different kinds of language that is being used to describe all of the different types of violence that are taking place here and all of the different people upon whom it is being rendered. Whereas in the next paragraph, we get the Palestinian people deserve a state of their own and a future free from Hamas. I am heartbroken by the images out of Gaza and the deaths of many thousands of civilians, including children. Notice in here that we have a couple of moves that are being made. We have the images out of Gaza. Images refers to something that the audience is presumed also to know. And, you know, if you are relentlessly scrolling social media, doom scrolling as a number of us probably are these days, you probably know the kinds of images that they might be referring to. It's important also to know, though, that 
he does not actually give this any presence in the sort of Perlman and Ulbrecht's Titeca sense of the word, where you are actually invoking a real image, bringing it before the eyes of your audience. You are just presuming that they already know what those images are. Think yeah. about if you are an historian or a student who is reading this op-ed years down the line now, you might not know exactly what images Biden is referring to here. And the fact that he doesn't actually give other than, you know, this notion of Palestinian children crying for lost parents. Parents are writing their child's name on their hand and legs. But notice as well, the actual means by which people are dying here is being elided and uh, erased. They're lost parents. They're not dead parents necessarily. Children are are getting their uh, arms and legs written on so they can be identified if the worst happens. There's no real mention of what the worst might actually be. It's conspicuous here. You know, obviously you can perform some inferences of your own to try and figure out what Biden means. But the fact is that he is not saying outright that these people are dying. And that is really kind of an important thing to mention here as well. Yeah, that contrast is so clear. And what does it remind us of? It reminds us of the contrast in the Farnham Jahanian email yes. between, you know, these very vivid and highly emotionally charged claims of anti-Semitism, and then a very distanced, hedged, which is to say rendered less certain claim of anti-Arab racism or Islamophobia. A similar kind of disjunct is performed here where the death and destruction that Israel faced on October 7th is given much more presence and much more vividness and much more certainty than the death and destruction being faced by people in Gaza. And that is clearly a manipulative choice that's designed to make the former seem like a greater tragedy than the latter. That's exactly right. Yeah. So let's go on. Our goal should not be simply to stop the war for today. It should be to end the war forever, break the cycle of unceasing violence, and build something stronger in Gaza and across the Middle East so that history does not keep repeating itself. I want to stop there because that's a really fascinating pivot in this argument, which is, again, there's this strategy of kind of naturalizing. I guess I would call it, the, like to give the strategy a big umbrella term, we might call it naturalization, where events in history and in the present that are highly political and have been undertaken strategically by specific powerful people in the U.S. and Israeli government are presented as though they are natural facts in the world that we have no control over and that kind of exist outside of our action. And so this idea that there's been a kind of forever war, there has been a cycle of violence, history, history has been itself, history has been repeating itself. That implies that the U.S. played no role in that. And, and we know for a fact that the U.S. played the overwhelming role in that cycle of violence because Israel has always had extremely strong U.S. support. We probably don't need to tell listeners how much money and military and diplomatic support the U.S. gives to Israel every yeah. year, right? And, and that number has only gone up and up regardless of party in power in the United States. And so none of this stuff is occurring naturally. 
No. And I mean, in the Middle East, if we want to talk more broadly about the Middle East, I mean, the U.S. has had a hand in intervening in the uh, domestic affairs of Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Egypt, Libya, like everywhere that you could categorize as like the Middle East or uh, that part of East Africa. The U.S. has had a hand in its overall like diplomatic and geopolitical history. It's not as if these things are just like like you said, Calvin, natural cycles that will continue to happen unless the U.S finally takes a stand and does something about it. Yeah. And so as we get further into this, you can see how that naturalization strategy affects the way that Biden is trying to manipulate readers into understanding the particular issue of Israel and Palestine. So going on, he says, quote, just weeks before October 7th, I met in New York with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The main subject of that conversation was a set of substantial commitments that would help both Israel and the Palestinian territories better integrate into the broader Middle East. That is also the idea behind the innovative economic corridor that will connect India to Europe through the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Israel, which I announced together with partners at the Group of 20 Summit in India in early September. Stronger integration between countries creates predictable markets and draws greater investment. Better regional connection, including physical and economic infrastructure, supports higher employment and more opportunities for young people. I had to stop this here because it feels like in a lot of these White House press briefings, there's always like one paragraph where they kind of give up the game a little bit. And to me, this was the place where it was really happening, where like... And I'm not exactly saying that any of these things are wrong necessarily, but like if you really want to look at the kind of like the interests that are driving this kind of discourse and the stance that the U.S. has taken in giving military and financial aid to Israel as its primary ally, you know, it's to create better economic expediency, market predictability, to draw greater investment into the U.S. and its proxies or allies in the Middle East, that, you know, the humanitarian language has all of a sudden really fallen away here. And now the conversation is about economics instead of just achieving peace in terms of not having people killed. This is kind of a conspicuous tell, if you ask me. Totally agree. The The pivot is so hard. and And what's funny is... On last episode, we talked a little bit about analyzing discourse by Norman Fairclaw. I, again, want to underscore how much I recommend that book. And the case study that Fairclaw looks at throughout that book is neoliberal economic policy. And you will see, if you go look at that book, how similar this language is to the language that Fairclaw was analyzing in 2003. Not to naturalize myself, but like history has been stuck on like a skipping record mode with this kind of neoliberal economic rhetoric for such a long time. And it's just fascinating to see that, as you say, human life, violence, human rights, all of that kind of falls away in this paragraph to focus on integration, investment, economic infrastructure, these highly abstracted economistic frames are just activated all over the place. Let me just read the last couple of sentences from that paragraph because they really ring it home. Oh, yeah. That's what we have been working to realize in the Middle East. It is a future that has no place for Hamas's violence and hate. And I believe that attempting to destroy the hope for that future is one reason that Hamas instigated this crisis, unquote. And so I just have to say, it kind of feels here like the president is trying to get like communists to support Hamas because (laughs) 
he's strongly implying that the biggest problem with October 7th and with Hamas being in power in Gaza is that it's stopping neoliberalism from truly taking over. The veins in the Middle of global East. trade cannot flow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, and I, I would say my biggest critique of Hamas, you know, I, I, I could make a long list, but one is that they are not a, a left communist no. organization at all. Like they are truly not like trying to, you know, turn Gaza into a communist economy. They're more invested, you know, for strategic reasons in using resources for militarization than than that. And, you know, but but this paragraph strongly implies that like Hamas has a communist goal for the Middle East that <laughs> that would push against integration with these neoliberal powers. Yeah. And at an even a broader level, I mean, there's a there's another cognitive manipulation strategy that's going on at the very end here, which is to just say that this is the one reason that Hamas instigated this crisis. And yeah. this is where we really get like, you know, the historical myopia really kind of takes over. This is where manipulation at the level of obscuring important historical context from a reader's eyes is going to be really important as well, because People in Gaza, if you haven't read up about this, have been living in essentially a concentration camp for the last couple of decades at the very least with very little freedom of movement, with very little access to any sort of trade networks, everything that goes into or out of Gaza, including people, not just resources, but people too, has to be sort of regulated and tightly controlled by the Israeli government and the IDF. These are inhuman, intolerable conditions that people in Gaza have had to live under. And I think that it's a little simplistic to just say that there is only a single instigator in this crisis and that it is indeed Hamas, because that is erasing a lot of the violence that Israel has been doing to people in Gaza for many decades now. 100%. So these next several paragraphs get into the two-state solution as the Biden administration defines it. And this is a really important part in the argument. This much is clear. A two-state solution is the only way to ensure the long-term security of both the Israeli and Palestinian people. Though right now it may seem like that future has never been further away, this crisis has made it more imperative than ever. A two-state solution, two peoples living side by side with equal measures of freedom, opportunity, and dignity, is where the road to peace must lead. Reaching it will take commitments from Israelis and Palestinians, as well as from the United States and our allies and partners. That work must start now. To that end, the United States has proposed basic principles for how to move forward from this crisis to give the world a foundation on which to build. To start, Gaza must never again be used as a platform for terrorism. There must be no forcible displacement of Palestinians from Gaza, no reoccupation, no siege or blockade, and no reduction in territory. And after this war is over, the voices of Palestinian people and their aspirations must be at the center of post-crisis governance in Gaza. So just a couple of things about, I mean, obviously we can get into a, and we will probably get into a broader discussion about the two-state solution and the way that, you know, a one state solution or an integrated solution rather of like, you know, Palestinian people and Israeli people living together, you know, with full civil rights for both people under a unified government is not even on the table here. The organization of information is really important in that paragraph that begins to start. Gaza must never again be used as a platform for terrorism. If you think about that as a topic sentence for that paragraph, everything that comes after that has nothing to do with the actions of Hamas. 
Hamas okay. says there must be no forcible displacement of Palestinians from Gaza, no reoccupation. Who is doing the forcible displacement, the reoccupation, the siege and the blockade or the reduction in territory of people in Gaza? That is the IDF and the Israeli government. Yeah. It seems to me that he's kind of burying a little bit the things that he is asking of the Israeli government and the IDF, burying it in a paragraph that begins with Gaza must never again be used as a platform for terrorism, which to me is really a strange choice. I mean, I think that it's clear that he's kind of trying to hide the because, again, Israel is not mentioned anywhere in this no. paragraph either. There's no action that it is presumed that Israel is taking. You have to have that contextual knowledge already to understand that that's what he's hinting at. And that's clearly an example of that kind of information inequity that yes. is necessary for manipulation. So for this to work, you have to not possess that knowledge and, and it kind of exploits that gap in knowledge to get that point across. All right. So I'll continue here. As we strive for peace. Any thoughts on As that? We title. <laughs> who is who is striving for peace? Calvin, I have no idea. I have no I idea. I don't know. I don't know. So I do want no, I had to I had to give you a second on that one because the thing oh. is that the constant unspoken background to this, again, the information inequity that a manipulative instance of rhetoric like this depends upon is not knowing that the United States is Israel's strongest ally that is constantly arming this ongoing war. And so yes. if we are striving for peace, that assumes that we aren't currently creating war, which we know is not true, but we know that. Yes. And I think Biden is assuming that his audience does not know that or yes. that that knowledge will not be primed when they're reading this. That's right. All right. So let's continue. As we strive for peace, Gaza and the West Bank should be reunited under a single governance structure ultimately under a revitalized Palestinian authority as we all work toward a two-state solution. I have been emphatic with Israel's leaders that extremist violence against Palestinians in the West Bank must stop and that those committing the violence must be held accountable. The United States is prepared to take our own steps, including issuing visa bans against extremists attacking civilians in the West Bank. So again, the topic sentence here seems to be a directive that's positioned towards Palestinian leaders and people that we need to unify uh, Gaza and the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority, while the subsequent sentences are talking about illegal settlements in the West Bank and violence that those settlers have continued to commit against Palestinian residents in their ongoing occupation and displacement campaign. I mean, same deal with like organization of information. The topic sentence says something that Gaza uh, and the West Bank and Palestinians need to do. The rest of the paragraph is kind of this like, yeah, and by the way, you know, Israel, maybe knock it off with all that extremist violence, you know, taking people's homes away from them and kicking them out into the street. You know, it, it really doesn't get much more clear than that. There's a manipulation strategy going on here. But in addition, I just want to also note here, too, that, I mean, you know, if we're talking about wanting to unify or if presumably the U.S.'s goal is to unify Gaza and the West Bank under a revitalized Palestinian authority, certainly they could be putting a little bit more pressure on 
Israel and the Israeli government to help with that. Whereas, you know, it's been reported on in a large number of different outlets that Benjamin Netanyahu actually worked in in many ways, both implicit and explicit, to empower Hamas as a sort of uh, an easy villain. Uh, for Israel to fight against that, you know, basically disempowering other more moderate uh, political parties and candidates that, you know, could have potentially been leading Gaza right now. So, I mean, the the fact that you are, you know, kind of laying all of this at the feet of Hamas or saying that it's all about, you know, it's if only the people of Gaza and the West Bank would come together under this new Palestinian authority, ignoring the fact that the Israeli government has been acting against that uh, for decades now is really a clear instance of manipulation. Right. And and that that entire process was very similar to the United States funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to oppose the Soviet Union. Israel in the 70s and 80s did support Hamas to undermine the PLO, which was the the slightly more moderate party representing Palestinians. And so there is a long history there that, yes, is intentionally elided here. Yes. So let's continue. The international community must commit resources to support the people of Gaza in the immediate aftermath of this crisis, including interim security measures and establish a reconstruction mechanism to sustainably meet Gaza's long term needs. And it is imperative that no terrorist threats ever again emanate from Gaza or the West Bank. If we can agree on these first steps and take them together, we can begin to imagine a different future. In the months ahead, the United States will redouble our efforts to establish a more peaceful, integrated, and prosperous Middle East, a region where a day like October 7th is unthinkable. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I want to point something out here, which again, this idea that this op-ed from the president, Joe Biden, continues to refer to in the aftermath of this crisis, continues to refer to (laughs) reconstruction. What's fascinating about that is that it implies that this is going to stop sometime soon. This was written on November 18th, right? We are now 20 days after that. How many thousands of more people have died since then? I mean, this is really disgusting, disturbing stuff. When you realize that part of what the manipulative purpose of this is, I believe, is to serve as a kind of holding pattern for U.S. audiences. Don't get too disturbed by the images coming across your screen or be disturbed, but realize that those images are outside of our control and that pretty soon they'll fade. We promise you won't have to worry about this. Don't join any of the protests that are going on because we're doing everything we can to, I guess, be part of the solution to this, which again, as we've said, relies heavily upon a lack of knowledge about the ways in which the United States is funding this entire thing. And not only is funding it, the United States has intelligence relationships with Israel. There's a very strong likelihood that U.S. intel is providing advice on targets, is providing technology to the IDF that the IDF is using in these attacks. So there's really no way to disentangle the U.S. from all of this violence that we've seen. But the manipulative language here 
assumes constantly that the U.S. is part of a future solution and not part of a like present problem. This is a kind of longer term, I feel like, cognitive manipulation strategy of just the Biden administration more broadly and kind of just the U.S. Democrats, uh, if we want to talk about that in kind of a general term uh, as well, is that when Democrats and when Joe Biden finally took power, all of a sudden it was sort of like there were so many things that we thought we could do with our control over the federal government, but now all of a sudden we find ourselves hamstrung with all this this inability to really do it. We have to take steps along with the rest of the international community. We have to get participation from other people involved here. We cannot apply any sort of direct leverage in these circumstances to uh, significantly change anything, which, I mean, to your point there, Calvin, I think there are, there are many ways that the U.S. could be strategically applying leverage, you know, calling for conditions on aid to Israel and to the Israeli military as or a for now, stop sending the aid. Yes. Yeah. Just stop sending it, you know, call for a ceasefire. There are many, many different ways that the U.S. could be putting pressure on Israel to actually strive towards peace. I mean, if that was the case, they wouldn't be releasing statements like this that equivocate between, you know, Hamas and freaking Russia. They would be actually taking substantive action to stop people from dying. And they're not. Right. They're not. So let's continue. In the meantime, we will continue working to prevent this conflict from spreading and escalating further. I ordered two U.S. carrier groups to the region to enhance deterrence. We are going after Hamas and those who finance and facilitate its terrorism, levying multiple rounds of sanctions to degrade Hamas's financial structure, cutting it off from outside funding, and blocking access to new funding channels, including via social media. I have also been clear that the United States will do what is necessary to defend U.S. troops and personnel stationed across the Middle East, and we have responded multiple times to the strikes against us. I also immediately traveled to Israel, the first American president to do so during wartime, to show solidarity with the Israeli people and reaffirm to the world that the United States has Israel's back. Israel must defend itself. That is its right. And while in Tel Aviv, I also counseled Israelis against letting their hurt and rage mislead them into making mistakes we ourselves have made in the past. So, I mean, you know, invocation of 9-11, yes, yes, yes. But I mean, at the same time, like the idea that this is making a mistake, I think is also giving a lot of cover to the actual goals of the the truly radical settler movement that is currently infringing further and further illegally into the West Bank to establish settlements and displace Palestinian people from their homes. To frame this all as self-defense, I think it still is, you know, at this point is we've clearly gone outside the bounds of self-defense by any reasonable definition of that term, not only because of the vastly skewed death toll, but the fact that Israel and the radical settler movement is clearly using this crisis as an opportunity to expand settlements in the West Bank to commit acts of violence against the Palestinian residents living there, and even potentially expand settlements into Gaza. As of December mm -hmm. 8th, when we're recording this, it is looking like as the IDF continues its ground invasion into the Gaza Strip, they are focusing on capturing pieces of territory with some rumblings of talking about, you know, settling the Gaza Strip with with Israeli settlements. To pretend that this is self-defense is in itself utterly indefensible under any definition of the word. Right. Continuing. From the very beginning, my administration has called for respecting international humanitarian law, minimizing the loss of innocent lives, and prioritizing the protection of civilians. 
Following Hamas's attack on Israel, aid to Gaza was cut off. And by food... who? By who? Who cut the aid off to Gaza? <laughs> Very good point. Aid to Gaza was cut off, and food, water, and medicine reserves dwindled rapidly. As part of my travel to Israel, I worked closely with the leaders of Israel and Egypt to reach an agreement to restart the delivery of essential humanitarian assistance to Gazans. Within days, trucks with supplies again began to cross the border. Today, nearly 100 aid trucks enter Gaza from Egypt each day, and we continue working to increase the flow of assistance manyfold. I've also advocated for humanitarian pauses in the conflict to permit civilians to depart areas of active fighting and to help ensure that aid reaches those in need. Israel took the additional step to create two humanitarian corridors and implement daily four-hour pauses in the fighting in northern Gaza to allow Palestinian civilians to flee to safer areas in the south. So, I mean, there's a lot that you could say about this paragraph. Just in brief, the things that I would point out here is that the invocation of this word humanitarian pause, if you've been paying Mm. attention to political media a lot over the past month or so, this is kind of the weasel word that a lot of politicians are using to avoid the term ceasefire. Because, And again, humanitarian pause is a very conspicuous choice of language, right? When something is paused, the implication is that it will resume at some point. Like Just because you're doing a pause for humanitarian reasons does not mean that tomorrow we will resume press the play button and the killing will start again. The only real true lasting peace comes from a ceasefire. And that's really what we should be calling for. And then of course, just, I have to say the invocation of, you know, the humanitarian corridors into the South of Gaza, the South of Gaza is now having daily bombardments of airstrikes against it. Basically, you know, the IDF told people to move to a certain place in the Gaza strip and then they bombed the hell out of it. Like, I mean, Again, not self-defense. There is clearly like a lot of really malicious military strategy uh, that is directly targeting civilian populations here. So again, I I really take issue with the manipulative phrasing of that. Yeah, and there's a euphemistic strategy here that I find really disturbing, which is this idea of pauses to permit civilians to depart areas of active fighting. What that really looks like and could mean ultimately, is leaving your home and never getting to go back again, right? Because something that the United States, that Israel's government hardly ever acknowledges is that much of the current population of Gaza is either refugees or descendants of refugees from other parts of Israel and Palestine. So these are people who have already been driven from their homes And you're doing that again. You're driving them from their homes. But of course, when you frame it as departing areas of active fighting, it sounds very nice. And it sounds like you're doing them a favor. You're getting them out of harm's way. But what's going to happen after that? Like, will they ever be allowed back? No, exactly. We're, We're talking about forced displacement, but putting it in the language of look at what good humanitarians were being. Yeah. So here's an important pivot. This stands in stark opposition to Hamas's terrorist strategy. Hide among Palestinian civilians. Use children and innocents as human shields. Position terrorist tunnels beneath hospitals, schools, mosques, and residential buildings. Maximize the death and suffering of innocent people, Israeli and Palestinian. If Hamas cared at all for Palestinian lives, it would release all the hostages 
give up arms and surrender the leaders and those responsible for October 7th. So this for me is definitely the most grotesque part of the statement. It's amplifying claims about Hamas's behavior and military strategy being used basically as cover for just, again, bombing the kinds of civilian infrastructure that's necessary to maintain a functioning society in the Gaza Strip, which seems to be kind of hinting at the direction that things are going here that you know the what it, whether it's the establishment of settlements in Gaza or just the forced displacement of refugees and residents from the Gaza strip to other countries whatever it is it's not good and i think the broader point that i would make about it is that this doesn't justify a disproportionate response Correct. and i believe that's the way that un humanitarian organizations have come down on this over multiple cycles of Israeli violence in Gaza from 2008, 2009 to 2012 to 2014. I think that's the real issue is that no alternative institutions have been allowed to exist in Gaza. It's very difficult to build a civil society with no resources and where, you know, Israel itself, as we pointed out earlier in the earlier in the episode, has propped up Hamas. And then it and the United States wants to turn around and say that Hamas is too integrated with the civil population of Gaza. Like that is a result of Hamas being the most powerful, you know, political entity in the area, right? It's kind of a necessary result of one institution being kind of like the most powerful one. And and given lots of outside aid. And so this, again, is being contrasted with the previous paragraph where we were told about humanitarian corridors, civilians being allowed to depart areas of active fighting. There's this really strong contrast between the benevolent behavior of Israel backed by the United States and the hellishly evil behavior of Hamas, right? This is a kind of Manichaean contrast (laughs) between good and evil. So let's continue here. As long as Hamas clings to its ideology of destruction, a ceasefire is not peace. Oh, boy. Interesting, right? So oh boy. as you pointed out earlier, the contrast in vocabulary between ceasefire and humanitarian pause, this is clearly setting up ceasefire as like ceasefire equals Hamas equals bad. Yes. So let's continue. Quote, to Hamas's members, every ceasefire is time they exploit to rebuild their stockpile of rockets reposition fighters, and restart the killing by attacking innocents again. An outcome that leaves Hamas in control of Gaza would once more perpetuate its hate and deny Palestinian civilians the chance to build something better for themselves. Which again is like, I mean, so this is the problem with this sort of historically myopic framing here. Like the entire reason why a Palestinian resistance in general exists and the reason why it reaches the levels of violence that it does against Israel is because of the ongoing humanitarian nightmare that Israel inflicts on Gazans and Palestinians more broadly and has been doing so for decades. So again, it's this sort of like I mean, I don't mean to really, you know, reduce it this way, but it is Joe Biden's version of telling Palestinians, like, stop hitting yourself, right? Like, it literally is a way of saying, like, you are always at fault, Palestinian people, because you voted for Hamas. You no longer qualify as victims. You cannot ever be rendered as victims. And we should say that the Palestinians voted for Hamas in 2006. That's right. What is that? Over 
17 years ago, the average age of Palestinians in Gaza, I believe, is younger than that. Right. So this is a very young population. Mm -hmm. Most of them were not around when that vote took place. Certainly most of them didn't vote at all. And so the idea that that they should be held accountable for that is is absurd. Now we're coming to the to the end of the article here. And I'll just read the rest because the rest what this focuses on is Joe Biden connecting the war in Israel and Gaza to social divisions here in the United States. And here at home, in moments when fear and suspicion, anger and rage run hard, we have to work even harder to hold on to the values that make us who we are. We're a nation of religious freedom and freedom of expression. We all have a right to debate and disagree and peacefully protest, but without fear of being targeted at schools or workplaces or elsewhere in our communities. In recent years, too much hate has been given too much oxygen, fueling racism and an alarming rise in anti-Semitism in America. That has intensified in the wake of the October 7th attacks. Jewish families worry about being targeted in school while wearing symbols of their faith on the street or otherwise going about their daily lives. At the same time, too many Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, and Palestinian Americans, and so many other communities, are outraged and hurting fearing the resurgence of the Islamophobia and distrust we saw after 9-11. We can't stand by when hate rears its head. We must, without equivocation, denounce anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and other forms of hate and bias. We must renounce violence and vitriol and see each other not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. Last paragraph here. In a moment of so much violence and suffering, in Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, and so many other places, it can be difficult to imagine that something different is possible. But we must never forget the lesson learned time and again throughout our history. Out of great tragedy and upheaval, enormous progress can come. More hope, more freedom, less rage, less grievance, less war. We must not lose our resolve to pursue those goals, because now is when clear vision, big ideas, and political courage are needed most. That is the strategy that my administration will continue to lead in the Middle East, Europe, and around the globe. Every step we take toward that future is progress that makes the world safer and the United States of America more secure. And that's it. Just as a way of kind of summing up the way that I feel, the way that I felt as you were reading these last four or five paragraphs here, particularly in talking about the effect that this conflict has had on different institutions of American daily life, particularly in higher education, as we talked about last time. Not only, again, do we see this kind of equivocation where there is a fueling of racism and alarming rise in anti-Semitism. Meanwhile, too many Muslim Americans and other their communities are outraged and hurting, fearing the resurgence of the Islamophobia and distrust we saw after 9-11. Anti-Semitism, according to Biden, is resurging. Islamophobia yep. is merely feared to be resurging. And to this, I mean, I hesitated bringing this up on the podcast, but just to, just right after the Thanksgiving weekend, one of the students who attends my college, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, was shot in Burlington, Vermont, while going down the street, going out to dinner with a couple of his friends. Two of them were wearing kafiyas, a traditional Palestinian scarf, while they were all speaking Arabic to one another. They were all shot by a man uh, who came up to them on the street, didn't say any words to them, just fired. Thankfully, all three of them are expected to survive. 
But the 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 statement that came from President Biden after that did not mention Islamophobia at all. No. Did not mention anything about, you know, mentioned the fact that they were uh, Palestinian, that they were simply spending Thanksgiving gathered with family and loved ones, that, you know, no person should worry about being shot at while going about their daily lives, and that this is an issue of gun violence. Now, this has not officially been labeled as a hate crime by, you know, any sort of law enforcement body, but I mean, there's not it's not a stretch to say that in a time of you know resurging tensions particularly being felt by muslim community members and palestinians particularly that that this has nothing to do with the ongoing conflict between israel and gaza and my my heart really breaks for students that in reading this kind of discourse I mean, forget the uh, number of like American citizens who are also reading this and could be manipulated by it. But Palestinian people living in America who read this kind of thing and see that there is no recognition of the fact that this violence is coming home to roost and that that is just what I really cannot countenance. Yeah, it's it's I I truly truly feel not only for my you know for our students Tassin, but also for the families of all other Palestinian people living in the United States right now. It has to be an incredibly alienating time when this is the kind of manipulative rhetoric that's coming directly from our primary head of state. Absolutely, and and it's not even as if you know oh we can forgive this because that that attack hadn't happened yet when this was published on October 24th, there was a six year old child, a Palestinian American child shot in a Chicago suburb shot That's and killed right. in a hate crime. Right. Which was clearly a result yes. of the violence that was going on in Israel and Palestine. So it's not, it's not like there's a lack of evidence of this stuff or that it's hypothetical. It had already clearly been going on when this was published and also when Farnum Jahanian wrote his email that, again, minimized that hatred. And so, yeah, this this contrast is really disturbing and it's hard to reckon with because we know for facts that this is going to hurt Biden politically, that it's going to hurt the Democrats politically. So it's also even just like from a practical, pragmatic perspective, I can't understand why they're so minimizing of Islamophobia when it's like very clearly evident. And it's it's hard to make heads or tails of, except when you put it together with the larger manipulative message of a piece like this. And that's what I wanted to get to here to conclude, which is that there really does seem to be a broader manipulation going on with a piece like this, which is to connect what the United States is doing in supporting Israel in this conflict to what it's doing to back Ukraine and take on Russia, and just more broadly, this kind of neoliberal leadership model that's proposed in this kind of piece. I really think the goal is to prevent critique of U.S. militarism as a key part of U.S. policy. Like this is just designed to say, yes, you're seeing violence, you're seeing suffering, but it's not the fault of U.S. militarism. Those things exist naturally 
and objectively in the world. U.S. militarism helps to get humanitarian aid to people suffering from those things. It helps to, you know, get people out of harm's way and actually reduce hatred around the world, reduce violence. We're not part of that. U.S. militarism is a distinct thing from that. And if anything, U.S. militarism will lead to these incredibly manipulative slogans of more hope, more freedom, less rage, less grievance, less war. I mean, could there be any better encapsulation of the manipulative project of a piece like this than having a sentence, less war, full stop? Like, this entire thing is an argument for war. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and he's doesn't he's done an incredibly good job of using this kind of double speak to cover that up. I think you're absolutely right about that. It's yeah, a justification of American militarism by claiming it to be the opposite that yeah. only through war can we achieve peace, right? This is classic George Orwell 1984 I stuff. I mean, it, like yeah. I like I hate to invoke that, <laughs> but like you know, it's right there. And that's where this does remind me a little bit of what we talked about in our Stop Cop City episode, where like a lot of institutional rhetoric that is justifying really harmful policies and really harmful social phenomena, the rhetoric itself is pretty bad. Like it's pretty tacky and like yeah. obvious. Very, yeah. It's very banal. And and I don't know what we do with that as teachers of rhetoric as scholars of it you start to run out of things to say because like it's so right in your face this is a president who's presiding over some of the honestly most intense localized civilian destroying violence you know in in generations right like what what we're seeing in gaza like the scale of death and the scale of bombing is very hard to compare to other wars. Like it is on the scale of like a World War II in terms of like the number of people dying and the incredibly constrained geographical space where it's taking place. The fact that a president presiding over that would be saying less war. I mean, it, it like it's it's so kind of directly duplicitous that you start to feel like I'm not sure what to do with this. Yeah. No, I and I mean I think that is in a lot of ways kind of the purpose of manipulation like this if not to get you on the side of the manipulator. I mean, if nothing else just to disorient you, to gaslight you, to make you yeah. feel like, you know, like this could not possibly be the reality and yet here it is. Like, you know, they are they they're kind of dunking on us. Yeah, they are. They're dunking on us a little bit which Again, is just it it it's a stark reminder of the way that discourse and manipulation works, the way that it's aided and abetted and backed by material power. I think by social power, yes, by, exactly. Yes, yep, yep. And so, I mean, it it really is. I mean, you know, if nothing else, it's definitely you know a W in the column for Toon Van Dyke. Like, I mean, he really kind of nailed it in terms of being able to show us the way that discursive manipulation works its way into these broader cognitive and then social structures and reify material power. But yeah, I mean, what we do with this is still very much up to contest. It's very much open to, you know, what activists are doing right now. Any kind of pressure you can apply in uh, different 
different parts of your life where it's safe to do so, you know, it we're we're kind of in a little bit of an experimental territory rhetorically right here. I think it's it's safe to say that it it feels in so many ways like there are no good answers to this, but by the same token, maybe there are no bad answers right now. There's an opportunity for some good answers to come out of what does a international solidarity movement look like? What is organizing on behalf of people that not only you might not know face to face, but you know, who live on the other side of the world, what might that look like to organize for the rights of somebody knowing that that could have just as easily been you by accident of birth? How do you find ways to express that kind of love and solidarity across international borders? That's the charge I would leave our listeners with, you know, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a minor project there. I mean, no, yeah, I think you're, <laughs> I think you're right. Like to take it back to the manipulation framework, we know that manipulation involves cognition and discourse, but I mean, I would point to the element of social power. Yes. How can we build social power to counter this kind of manipulation? I don't know what that looks like, but that's the question that we need to answer because I do start to worry that just intervening in the discursive realm without having the social power to have your discursive interventions mean anything and ultimately influence right cognition right like reverse mm -hmm. this kind of nefarious mind control that's the real question and i don't know what that looks like but it, it is clear as day to me looking at examples like this looking at the cop city example that social power is the problem here it's that when some manipulators have access to social power their manipulation doesn't even have to be that good, and it still affects power. It still maintains power. And so, yeah, as you said, pretty easy little project, little, <laughs> little homework assignment for our listeners. Think about that. Build some social power to push back on the manipulation of That's the most true. powerful man in the world, Joe Biden. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, on a not to not to try and, you know, put a fine point on it, but I mean it does I think the other thing that Van Dyke's framework offers us is that, you know, that kind of building social power also starts through discourse, right? Norman right. Fair Norman Fairclaw also wrote a really great book called Discourse and Social Change mm -hmm. that was kind of taking a CDA or CDS approach to understanding the way that progressive or positive social change happens. And, you know, part of that is through establishing a common set of symbols, a common language through which we can understand one another and understand how to connect with, form bonds of solidarity with one another across boundaries of difference, of international borders. And, you know, again, like I'm not, I'm not qualified to tell us necessarily what that looks like, but right. I am, I'm, I'm in it with you all, you know? Yeah. We're, and, we're and, all, and we're I, all trying. We're all trying, and and it's clear that you know there are traces in even in this article that there are some talking points or or tropes or ideas that even the most powerful manipulators in the world are forced to grapple with. Ideas like ceasefire. I mean, the fact that he has to condemn that yep. and associate it with Hamas tells you that it's a strong demand. At least the he fact said that, it. Yep. Yeah, he says it like he has to engage with it. The fact that he has to engage with this critique of what the U.S. did after 9-11, of the massive Islamophobia that occurred after 9-11, the fact that he has to acknowledge that, I mean, at least tells you that people have exposed that and have raised that to the point of 
being, you know, part of the discourse. And so, yeah, we, we just have to keep pushing for, you know, an opening and expansion of these discourses that are ultimately so constraining and so constricting. That's exactly right. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us in this struggle session. I, I hope that at the very least it has been cathartic for you to, you know, to to join in on us as we kind of try to struggle through this as well. I mean, to say nothing of the fact that we are two people who are living in America in the kind of imperial core from which this is happening, but feeling the kind of weight of that responsibility, you know, I at the very least hope that, you know, you were able to take something from this as well. Any final thoughts before we sign off, Calvin? Yeah, I would just say, you know, get into some Van Dyke, get into critical discourse studies. We got a nice shout out from another podcast on Twitter, thanking us for a previous episode. And I would just say, you know, if you found it useful, check out some of this research and some of these scholars and writers, because it's super relevant to technical communication, to rhetorical studies, writing studies, rhetoric and composition. And it's kind of gotten forgotten or, you know, relegated to its own little corner of the discipline. And I would say, you know, Alex and I are are really trying to kind of give it a renaissance because it's so relevant to things going on right now that we need to be intervening in. So yeah, thank you everyone for listening in again. We went long once again, but it's we just have so much, so many wonderful reverb thoughts to share with you and more will be coming soon. You got that right. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Stay safe, stay happy, stay healthy out there. Ceasefire now. Ceasefire now. We will talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Ben Williams, Sophie Wadzak, and Olivia Burnett. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.